You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to two places? The first is Matthew chapter 5 and verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. This is God's holy word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, And take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And the verses 7 to 11. James 5, 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, this evening we are now at the second to the last message on civil government. This has been a brief uh, sermon series on the place, the purpose, uh, the proper constitution of civil magistrate and uh, of the civil magistrate and our responsibility to the civil magistrate as well. Now tonight I would like for us to look at the subject of living under tyranny. Living under tyranny. How does a Christian live under a civil magistrate that is tyrannical? How is it that a Christian can serve uh, patiently and with good cheer when being oppressed. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And we know that the Lord Jesus told us about the age in which we live, that it will continue as it has always been, uh, where there will be wars and rumors of wars and all that goes along with wars and rumors of wars and uh, famines and plagues and so on. It's going to be difficult. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. While suffering unjustly. How is it that a Christian can endure suffering unjustly? That is living under tyranny. We know, as we've been looking over these past uh, uh, several weeks, that civil government is a blessing. It's a good thing. It's a good institution uh, that God has given. And that it is, it ought to be, it is given to be his servant. Uh, It has been given to us by God as a blessing. Samuel Rutherford says, a king is a special gift from God given to feed and defend the people of God that they may lead a godly and peaceable life under him. Civil government is God's servant. Romans 13.4 Civil government is a minister of God. Civil government is given by God to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do good. And we've seen how the definition of good and evil, those who do wrong, that's according to the Ten Commandments. That's what civil government is for. Without civil government, mankind would not be able to live peaceful and quiet lives. We would not enjoy the freedom of living a godly life and a dignified life. And so we need to understand that civil government is given by God. It's meant to be an institution that's a blessing and a good for us. And this is why we're told to pray for kings and those who are in authority. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, even though the civil government is supposed to be a blessing, it often turns out to be a curse. Some governments become tyrannical. They become unjust. And oppressive. But this does not take away the reality that the institution itself is a good. It is a blessing. Just as there are many deadbeat dads, there are many bad husbands and fathers who do not provide for or support or love or protect or care for their wives as God tells them to do in the Bible. But that doesn't mean then that just because there are bad husbands that the institution of marriage is a bad thing or that being a husband itself is an evil. Just because some husbands are brutes and abusers doesn't mean that this is what God's intention is or desire is for the office of husband. And likewise, the fact that some civil magistrates are tyrants doesn't mean that this is God's intention for the office. There's a big difference between what God permits to happen in providence 
and what God actually uh, desires and um, has set up as an ordinance for man. We know for a fact that God permits and allows Satan to do all kinds of evil in the world, but we would not uh, conclude from that that God desires and wants Satan to actually do evil in the sense that this is actually uh, God's desire to act out evil. In fact, we know that this is the case. Um, and we've been uh, studying this over the past number of weeks. We have uh, seen that the civil government is to be uh, an institution where the magistrates are elected by the people, they're chosen by the people, that they are put into office with a covenant, an agreement between the civil magistrate and the people. There is a covenant, there is a constitution where the king agrees to be their king and the people agree to be the subjects of the king. And that constitution then is the law of the land and they are both under that law. We know that as servants of God, as ministers of God's wrath, then they need to understand God's law and that becomes the standard of their judgments and of the laws that they legislate. Uh, we know these things from our past studies. However, uh, it is the case that some become tyrannical or that we come under a tyrannical government. Now again, we know that this is not what civil authority and government is supposed to be by the simple fact that the definition of governing authority, Romans 13.1, right? Where in Romans 13.1, Paul says, let everyone be in subjection to the governing authorities. That very uh, title of office, governing authority, is not tyranny, right? Tyranny is not a governing authority. Tyranny is something that devours and destroys. Governing authority is something that protects and provides for and helps. Again, sadly, it's the case that Christians come under tyranny, the unjust and oppressive uh, uh, government of tyrants. Sometimes this happens by conquest, right? By conquest, when an invading country, an enemy invades a land, and takes over one's country. When that happens, you know, if another country came in and invaded us, and then that country becomes our master or ruler, that's not a lawful civil magistrate. That's not a lawful civil magistrate. If the invader wins and takes over your country, their conquest doesn't give them the entitlement to be your civil magistrate lawfully because you're not consenting that they govern you. There's no consent there. Think of the Philistines, the Midianites, the Assyrians who invaded and conquered Israel. Their conquest did not make them lawful magistrates simply because they were victorious by the sword. And it's because they did not have the consent of the people. They're not ruling over you for their good. An invading army has no desire to govern you for your good, that you would live a peaceable 
and tranquil life. No, they're coming in to oppress you. They're coming in to take everything away from you. They might extort consent from you. You know, you obey or you will die. You give us your house and all your money or you will die. And then you consent to that. But that's not a willful consent. And that really isn't lawful government. That is not what God intends for civil government. It's a kind of tyranny. And sometimes that's how Christians come under tyranny and oppression, is through conquest. Sometimes that takes place, and you know, even some here in this room tonight uh, know of parents and grandparents who lived under such tyranny of conquest. Uh, many here perhaps would know the name, and I might not get this correct, Anton Adrian Mausert. Is that correct? No? What's the proper pronunciation? Mussert. Okay. That's my accent. Uh, he betrayed, this man betrayed Holland, and he supported the invasion of the Germans in World War II. He was not made civil magistrate by his fellow Dutchmen, he was rather given power by the invading Germans who gave him the title of leader of the Dutch people. And some of your parents would have been under this man and, uh, or grandparents. And so they were under the tyranny of that person who was unlawfully put over the people. So that's one way that Christians can come under tyranny. And some of you have very close connections to what it means to be a Christian living under such tyranny. Another way that Christians come under tyranny is when their own lawful government, civil magistrates that they elect by their people, violate their covenant with the people. They violate the constitution, the agreement between the people and the magistrate. They break the terms of that covenant and they become tyrants. King Saul is an example of this kind of oppressive tyranny. Remember when Saul was made king by the people, Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote that in a book. And he put that next to the scriptures, next to the law of God, uh, in, the, in the tabernacle, uh, most likely right by the Ark of the Covenant. That was the constitution, the law of the land. King Saul was not above that law. He was required to be subject to that law. And it's interesting that when the people made uh, Saul king, it was Samuel who told the people, he told the people, the rights and duties of the kingship so that everybody would understand, look, the king has limits in his authority and the king has duties in his authority and he must uphold his part of this covenant and contract. He must not be what he would become, unfortunately. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel told the people, what Saul would become. Samuel said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And Samuel is saying this prophetically. Samuel is saying, 
the king that God puts over you and you choose for yourself, the king that you choose for yourself, this is what he is going to do. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. You shall be his slaves. This is what the king that you choose is going to become. And the people said, no, 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 it won't happen. It won't happen. And then Samuel says, and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. So when the people did look upon Saul and they said, this is the man, long live the king, long live the king, look at him, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Doesn't he look great? I'd like to get into a selfie with this king. He's wonderful. Samuel wrote down the rights and duties of the kingship. This is what he is bound to do. Even though he told them, he's going to become a tyrant. Well, how is a Christian to live under such tyranny? Let's consider a few things. Let's consider our conduct and then, even more importantly, our attitude, our heart's attitude. Let's consider some things about our conduct. First of all, we must remember that when a duly elected civil magistrate uh, becomes a tyrant, he is still the lawful government. He still is the lawful government. He is legitimate, and he has a legitimate power and authority. He is the lawful government that God has appointed. And we can see this in David under Saul. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Verses 5 to 7. This is when uh, David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe when Saul came into the cave. Verse 5 says, And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went out on his way. So David's heart struck him. His conscience was struck. And the reason why his conscience was struck is because he did something that was showing dishonor to the lawful civil magistrate, his king, his king. 
now, we know that Saul had already attempted to kill David and that Saul was after David to kill David. But David did not use that as a justification then to kill Saul. The Lord forbid. In verse 8, it says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. You see, David didn't disown Saul as his king. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 26 and verses 7 to 11. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with, within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army laid around him. Then Abishai said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come and die, to die, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And then he says again in verses 17 and 18, when he does talk to Saul, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O King. My Lord, O King. You see how... David always viewed Saul, the tyrant who was oppressing him, who was persecuting him, who was seeking to kill him. Nevertheless, David regarded him as his king, the Lord's anointed. And so he would not seek to kill Saul and remove Saul from his office by this means. So Saul was always regarded as God's legitimate civil magistrate. And the sin of tyranny does not disqualify Saul's authority. That's something that we must always remember. Uh, as frustrated as we might ever become at the unjust and tyrannical oppression of a government that we might come under, uh, it nevertheless is still the legitimate lawful government. David, as a private citizen, would not rebel against Saul. He did not try to overthrow Saul's rule. And if anyone uh, would be inclined to think that he had an entitlement to do so, it would be David. Because David was already, at this time, anointed by Samuel and was told, you are going to be the king of Israel. And the men that were with, was with David... Uh, seem to always be thinking in that terms. This is God's giving you this opportunity to get rid of Saul and now become the king. But David, as a private citizen, uh, would not take that action. He would not overthrow Saul. David was a soldier in the army, a citizen of the nation of Israel, and Saul was his king. And so David honored him as such. David, as subject of Saul, obeyed the lawful 
commands of Saul, and he did not seek to overthrow him. Now, this is something that is uh, very important to understand this distinction between resisting unlawful commands of a civil magistrate and rebelling against the civil magistrate. Those are two very different things. To rebel is to fight against, to seek to overthrow, to seek to get rid of the lawful man magistrate. David didn't do that. To resist is simply not to obey his unlawful commands. And David did that as well. In fact, many of the people of Israel did that. Many of the people would not obey unlawful commands from Saul. Look at, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. And verses uh, 43 to 45. This is where Saul made a vow. And in one sense, uh, we might think that there was something good about the vow that, uh, the oath vow that um, Saul made. He said, uh, nobody eat anything until the enemy is completely vanquished. That seems like a good idea. In one sense, at least it, it seems like it, it's showing zeal. Look, we need to finish the job, right? That's what's behind this command. Uh, no one take a break. We have to make sure that we are completely victorious. So that seems like a good plan, except that, of course, Jonathan, who was the chief uh, instrument behind the whole victory, uh, didn't hear it, and then he had a little honey. And then, verse 43, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Notice verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Here you see the people resisting the commandment of Saul. Saul made a, a, a law, a command. Whoever eats must be put to death. And when it came to Jonathan, he said, all right, Jonathan, you're going to die. And the people said, no, no, it cannot be. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 16 Here is where Saul finds out that the priest uh, helped David along in his escape. Verse 16, and the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. So here again, you might say, uh, Saul is viewing David as an insurrectionist, as a rebel against his kingdom, as a threat to his kingdom. Saul is afraid of David. Saul thinks that David 
is going to overthrow him, even though that's not what David is doing, but Saul thinks that David wants to overthrow him. And so as a treasonous person, he looks at the high priest and said, you're guilty of treason uh, along with David because you gave him shelter. And they said, so they must be put to death. And he tells his guards, put them to death. But then we read in verse 17, but the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So they resisted. They resisted that unlawful command. So again, there is a great difference between rebelling and resisting. And today, in our age, in many parts of the church, uh, there's a confusion of these two things. That to go out and lawfully protest, to go out and to um, appeal to the law of the land, and to resist what are unlawful mandates from our magistrate is being identified as rebelling against our magistrate. And it's not so. It's not so. So honor the king, obey his lawful commands, but his unlawful commands may be resisted. So that's something in terms of our conduct. If the king is doing harm, if he's being a tyrant, has become an evil to the people, they are not required to participate in his tyranny. In his tyranny. Consider, David was a general in Saul's army. He was a general in Saul's army. And yet he refused serving Saul in the army by his action of fleeing from Saul. So you might think... Um, was David being wrong in running away from Saul? As a general in the army of Israel, isn't that a dereliction of duty? Isn't he going AWOL in his responsibility as a general in the army of Saul? Well, it's very interesting because he wasn't going AWOL. When David fled from Saul, he was escaping the tyranny of Saul, and so in that way he was resisting Saul by fleeing. But at the same time, we know that he was continually doing the work of a general in the army of Israel. Because even when he came under the, the shelter uh, of the Philistines, he was actually engaging in the war on the side of Israel. He, he was continuing to fight for Israel. So he was, in fact, being a faithful servant of the king, even though he wasn't submitting to the king. So that, again, we've talked about that before. To be a, a faithful citizen uh, in a land is to be faithful to the constitution of the land, not faithful to the unlawful commands of the person who's in the office of magistrate, okay? It's interesting too, 1 Samuel chapter 22, we read this earlier. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down from there to him and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. Now the context here that people are drawn to David in this cave 
like a magnet, and they're coming around here. The context here shows us, it makes it very clear that the people that were in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul, uh, that this was all due to the government of Saul. To the government of Saul. Saul had caused them uh, to groan and cry out to God. Just as Samuel prophesied in chapter 8, verse 18, and in that day you will cry out because of your king. And these people had become in distress, they had become in debt, they were bitter of soul because of the tyranny of Saul. And so they ran to David. There they were, all the protesters there in the, in the cave of Abdullah. Now, secondly, when it comes to how we live under tyranny, not just in terms of our conduct, that is that we have to always recognize and honor that the duly elected magistrate is our magistrate and we are to honor him and to obey his lawful commands, but we may resist his unlawful uh, commands. Don't become so tied to our present situation in life that we are not able to have hope and encouragement in the future and for the future. Imagine if you're at a pier, uh, you know, a, a big dock, a ship is going to depart. You have a one-way ticket to a faraway country, and you're waiting to get on the boat to leave. And the boat is going to depart in a half hour. And as you're there at the pier, waiting to get on with all your luggage there, you hear a debate and a crowd over your shoulder. And you turn around, you, you listen to the debate, and the people are fighting about uh, some uh, big development that's going to take place on the waterfront there. And there are both sides of people arguing on both sides. Should it happen? Should it not happen? And so on. Well, how tied up would you get into that debate? When you realize that this is no longer going to be your homeland, that this is not really going to affect you in the long run. How much are you going to invest yourself in that debate? If the boat was not going to depart for a year or so, then you might think, oh, this is really going to affect me you know, for a year. Do I really want this thing here uh, for a year until my boat leaves? But even then, you have to think, how important is it? How, how much should it affect my life. We have to remember that the situation of this present age, even when we are under oppression and tyranny, it's only for a temporary time. It's only for a temporary time. And the Lord Jesus uh, gets to this principle in a couple of places. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We read from this earlier. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, it's interesting here that the context is 
a legal context. It's the courtroom, right? Someone is suing you to take your tunic. And when you're in that situation, and the idea here is that the lawsuit against you and this person trying to sue you for the tunic is that they're being wrong about this. This is something that they're, this is an evil that they are doing. They're taking you to court to wrongfully take away your tunic from you. And Jesus says, uh, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, Jesus is not teaching here that there is no recourse for uh, cases of injustice, but rather he's teaching us about our mental attitude as Christians, how we are to live in the reality that we may come under unjust oppression. If someone takes you to court in order to take your car, says Jesus, be prepared to lose your house as well. If they can unjustly take your car, they could unjustly take your house, they could take it all, you could lose it all, don't be so tied to the things of this life that you lose, as it were, all your hope and all your joy. Calvin remarks on this, he says a number of really great things here. He says, this passage does not prohibit going to court or using lawful means to protect property. That's something that you find throughout the whole, uh, all of the reformers and in our confessions as well. The, the teaching where Jesus is, is saying that you know, we are um, to be willing to give up our rights and that we are to be willing to suffer unjustly and patiently, that does not mean then that you should never uh, appeal to the law of the land or legal recourse. Calvin says, none but a fool will stand upon the words so as to maintain that we must yield to our opponents what they demand before coming into the court of law. For such compliance would more strongly inflame the minds of wicked men to robbery and extortion. We know that nothing was farther from the mind of Christ. In other words, if Jesus is teaching here, look, if someone takes you to court and they're suing you for your tunic and they unjustly win, uh, therefore what he's really teaching you is, you know, just hand over your tunic. Don't even go to court. Don't even try. Now Calvin says, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The only thing that we are being taught by this here is that we must not be so tied to the things that we possess that if moth, rust, robber takes away what we have in terms of earthly treasures that we don't lose our, our heart and our soul, that it doesn't destroy us in terms of our hope and happiness because our real treasure is in heaven. Our real treasure is in heaven. What we're being taught here is that even when we are oppressed by an unjust decision, we are still to be prepared to lose more, but not be so affected by that. In other words, what the Lord is teaching us here in Matthew 5 is precisely what we're taught in Hebrews chapter 10. So in closing, I'll just have you consider 
Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 32 to 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves, you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, that's the key there, is that we know that our possessions are, our abiding possessions and treasures are not here in this life. They are in the life to come. And those can never be lost or taken away. So the Bible does not teach us that we must give up lawful means of recourse, lawful means to protect our lives, lawful means to protect our freedoms, our property. No, we are to use that. In fact, we must use those things if we are to preserve justice in the earth, which is what God desires. However, when we lose, when tyranny runs over justice with a steamroller, we as Christians don't need to lose heart or be crushed by that because we know that everything in this life is not where our hope is. Our hope is in the glory to come. Well, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that we have a sure inheritance, lasting treasure in heaven for us, and that nothing can take away this treasure, not any of the injustices or oppression that we might face in this life. We pray that you would help us each to be a faithful witness to what you have taught us and that we would conduct ourselves uh, lawfully and in a way that pleases you in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.